Our political system is corrupt, we're sorry to say. Not that this is an American phenomenon. We think to the contrary that it's pretty universal. Sex scandals involving political figures seem to make their way into the headlines like clockwork. Our guest today found himself at the center of one such flap because he was, by age 26, running a gay escort service in Washington, D.C. during the late Reagan administration. Henry Vincent was a coroner and funeral home director when he began applying his business skills to the fine art of managing escorts. And within time, he would find himself operating the largest such service in our nation's capital. As one might expect, this successful enterprise was utilized by D.C. movers and shakers. Unfortunately for Mr. Vincent, one of his high-end clients turned out to be an unsavory figure who blackmailed some of the people he lavishly entertained. Henry Vincent soon found himself wrapped up in these intrigues. As a pawn in a political crossfire, he fell victim to trumped-up charges. His silence was evidently sought by certain wielders of power, and it was obtained by Mr. Vincent plea bargaining his way into a prison term. Some of the forces that came to bear on our guest today remain unclear to him even now, but he has outlined the story in a new book, Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. We here at Radio Parallax know nothing about the world of escorts and very little about the gay scene, frankly, but we do know a bit about the dirty world of power politics, and we find Henry Vincent's tale absolutely credible. As such, we've invited him here to speak with us, and we're pleased to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Henry Vincent. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Can, uh, can we start by noting that in your title, Confessions of a DC Madam, makes use of a label that was put on you by the media. That same term would later be applied to a certain Deborah Jean Palfrey. I'd like you to clarify some of the similarities and differences of your case to that of Miss Palfrey. Sure. Miss Palfrey and I both ran escort services in Washington, D.C., and we were both dubbed the D.C. Madam by the press. And the federal government subjected both Miss Palfrey and me to a crucible that was designed to ensure our silence and were ultimately crushes. Ms. Palfrey was running an escort service when the Justice Department smacked her with a 14-count RICO indictment, and I was walloped with a 43-count RICO indictment, so I was potentially looking at 295 years behind bars. I think Ms. Palfrey became overwhelmed by the Justice Department's crucible, and she was unwilling or unable to cope with the government fleecing her of all of her money and status and depositing her in federal prison. So... I've done many things in my life. I'm a pilot, funeral director, and I've since gone back to school and gotten a master's degree in integrated marketing from West Virginia University. And Ms. Palfrey ran an escort service in the late 2000s. I ran one in 19, in the late 1980s. So we were both running escort services. She ran primarily a heterosexual service, and I ran a gay service. Well... Sexual scandals that arise pretty regularly in our nation's capital, and I, and I might add here in California's state capital, Sacramento. And uh, having been at the center of one such scandal, even though your court case wound up really not compromising your clients, how would you summarize such news item in terms of what usually becomes public and what actually never becomes public? Well, I, I think the media does not report that much on political blackmail. And it's been my experience that it almost never reports anything on political blackmail because most of the time uh, the people being blackmailed they don't say anything about it until after the fact it comes out usually years after the fact 
Escort services uh, seem to be rather common, both straight and gay. From, from your book, you get the idea that you started out in this business because it was lucrative, but you soon found yourself exposed to some rather wild scenes like orgies, drug abuse, pedophile fantasies. Uh, uh, did you find yourself shocked by some of what you witnessed? Oh, absolutely, I did. And I think the worst and most disturbing and sinister thing that I was exposed to was the fact that politicians and power brokers were provided with children if they had those inclinations. And I was consistently pressured by D.C. power brokers to provide child prostitutes to their power broker cronies, but I refused to have anything to do with child prostitution. And the federal government was aware of this fact because I told my government debriefers about an interstate pedophile network that was providing D.C. politicians and power brokers with children. But the Department of Justice, Secret Service, and FBI covered up that pedophile network. And I guess that leads us directly into the person who's the prime villain in your book, although there are many villains, I think, in your volume. A man named Craig Spence. He was a client who would spend $20,000 a month for your escorts originally. Apparently also a person with some influence in Washington, D.C. And a blackmailer who soon set out to compromise you. Can you talk a little bit about Mr. Spence? Craig Spence was a D.C. power broker and a CIA asset whose upscale D.C. home was bugged for audiovisual blackmail. He even arranged midnight tours of the White House for some of the escorts who I employed. And Spence was a very powerful individual. He would have these lavish parties, and there would be people from the media, people from government. It would look like a who's who of Washington, D.C. at these parties. And Craig Spence was uh, a fairly impressive man. He was surrounded by a security detail. And unbeknownst to me at the time, initially, uh, Craig had his house. There were two-way mirrors. Everything in there was being audio and videotaped. And he did blackmail many of the guests that came to his house. Well, I want to talk about what happened to you legally in a, in a moment, but a question does arise. Do, do you think that, uh, that Mr. Spence engineered your downfall, and if it wasn't him, uh, who, who are the prime suspects? Well, I don't think that Spence masterminded my downfall, but the very fact that I became enmeshed with Spence ultimately led to my downfall. I was privy to Spence's blackmail enterprise, his collusion with the Secret Service, and also his pandering of children to his power broker cronies. So I ultimately became affiliated with, I was the man who knew too much. The shadowy network that protected Spence was affiliated with the highest levels of government, and I had become a major liability. Well, it became clear, I'm, I'm sure at some point, you were, you were going to be prosecuted. I mean, it was, they weren't being subtle about it. Uh, you evidently secured the legal assistance of Greta Van Susteren, and uh, judging by your book, she was not a correct defense attorney. Can you talk about what happened to your case uh, under her direction? Well, I was very disappointed with the way Greta Van Susteren represented me because the government accomplished the two objectives when she was my attorney, my silence and imprisonment. At the onset of my case, she filed an 11-page motion to mandate the release of my clientele list that the government had previously seized from me. Greta argued that the names of my patrons should be released because if the government's assertion was accurate and my escort service was in actuality a prostitution ring, that my clients aided and abetted a criminal enterprise. She said she felt that forcing the government to disclose my clientele would abate its zealous prosecution of me. But the U.S. Attorney for D.C. contested Greta's motion, 
and the judge in my trial case sided with the prosecution and barred the public disclosure of my clientele. And after my trial judge acquiesced to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Greta started to change her tune, and she urged me to take the government's plea agreement, which was five years in prison. I ultimately entered into a plea agreement with the government, and I spent days being debriefed by government officials, and I told them everything I knew, everything I'd witnessed, and which was all very incriminating. And Greta, unbelievably, didn't attend the debriefings while I was incriminating myself. So I was very disappointed with the way Greta represented me because the government did accomplish its two objectives, my silence and my imprisonment. Well, you indeed spent five years in prison from your role as the D.C. madam, or at least what you knew. Uh, you do speculate in the book that, that if it had gone to trial and, and had gotten really uh, you know, some hardball being played, perhaps you might not have lived to be incarcerated. So I guess my question is, have you come to accept prison as actually having been the correct move ultimately? Well, I, I think that ultimately it was, I don't think I had much of a choice. And the prison industrial complex, it reduces you to a state that's less than human. And I certainly felt less than human while I was imprisoned. But the government strips you of your possessions and status in society and reduces you to a name and a number. And you're provided with three hots and a cot. You learn not to voice your opinion, keep your head low and fade into the woodwork federal prison systems little more than a federal jobs program and there's few chances for meaningful self-improvement and in many cases especially for nonviolent drug offenders it's a huge waste of taxpayers money and while i was in the institution i made my mind up that i wouldn't be in this situation again and after i went to federal prison i went back to school earned a master's degree in integrated marketing communications from west virginia university and I think education is the key to, to not being involved in the prison system. We're speaking with Henry Vinson, the author of Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. Uh, I think readers are going to be surprised, Mr. Vinson, when, when, they, when they take a look at your book, that you name names. Uh, I'd like you to share with some of our listeners who some of these famous clients were. Yes, and I do feel very comfortable naming names now because I ran an escort service when the Reagan and Bush 1 administrations were in office. And under Reagan, no gay civil rights legislation was passed, and Reagan once declared that homosexuals were sick. I think the best-known client that I had was William Casey. Uh, He was the head of the CIA, and I provided escorts to other prominent congressmen like Larry Craig and Barney Frank. And Vice President Bush's national security advisor, Donald Gregg, who was also the U.S. ambassador to South Korea during Bush's presidency. Charles Dutcher, the associate director of presidential personnel in the Reagan administration. And Paul Ballack, Labor Secretary Elizabeth Dole's political personnel liaison to the White House. And Larry Craig's a great example of the hypocrisy of the closeted Republicans that pervaded the Reagan administration with regards to gay civil rights. Craig developed quite a reputation for voting against gay legislation. Craig voted for a constitutional ban of same-sex marriage, and he voted against expanding hate crimes to include sexual orientation. And the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest gay and lesbian civil rights organization, gave him a zero percent. I think Larry Craig proved to be a major hypocrite. But I had lots of clients, and many of these people would also be at the 
lavish parties that Craig Spence would have. Craig would have these parties, and many government officials and media people would be there. It, it would look like a who's who of Washington, D.C. Yes, we should remind people that, that uh, Larry Craig, then a senator, was the guy that got in trouble in the Minnesota airport there with uh, the, the incident uh, with his supposed wide stance. But um, I just have to ask, it, it, these, these people, the identities of these people, obviously were one of the reasons why they wanted you to be silent and wanted to put you away. And it is a little surprising to me that, that even at this point you are, you're willing to come forward and, and name them. Well, I decided to, I have been quiet for a long time. This happened in the 80s, but I have two objectives for telling my story. First, I want to tell my side of the story because I've been subjected to a 25-year campaign of character assassination by the media. But second, I believe the American political system has become a wayward aberration of the ideas that it was built upon. And I believe that blackmail has played an integral role in hijacking our political system. And that's why, after all these years, I decided to write a book and tell my side of the story. Well, one gathers that it's, it's, not just, it's, it's all about not just blackmail, but protecting the blackmailers uh, is how things are getting done in Washington, D.C., something we don't think about much. That's right, and the media rarely reports on anything to do with blackmail. Let's talk about the CIA. Uh, when you mentioned William Casey, he was the CIA director under Reagan, a prominent neocon, a man who had a lot to do with Reagan getting elected. Some say uh, had something to do with the, uh, the, the alleged October surprise that kept the hostages in Iran. Casey's obviously the head of the CIA. You believe that Craig Spence was a CIA asset. He had spying equipment in his house. But uh, so when we talk about how this story was getting covered by the press, we have to talk about our intelligence agencies being involved, too. Uh, you note that the Washington Star went after Craig Spence, uh, but the Washington Post then downplayed the significance of his blackmailing and his importance at all. The Washington Post reporting certainly was working against you. So how do you, how do you put this all together, the slant of the press coverage that, we, that, that was uh, so prominent in your time and still, still in evidence today? Well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm someone whom fate placed in the epicenter of a sprawling conspiracy. And over the years, I've tried to understand the motives of the Washington Post to cover up a conspiracy that undermined American democracy. And the blackmail enterprise that installed numerous Washington, D.C. power brokers was run by CIA asset Craig Spence. And the CIA and the Washington Post have a long history of working together. Shortly after the CIA was formed in 1948, the agency initiated Operation Mockingbird, which was its campaign to influence the media. The CIA tapped in Washington Post. Uh, so the CIA has a long history of working with the Washington Post. I was intrigued, too. I mean, the Washington Star certainly went to bat for your side of the story, talking about what a bad guy Spence was, and they themselves are... Uh uh, oftentimes associated with elements of the CIA. It almost seems like one faction of the CIA was at odds with another in, in, this, whole, uh, in this whole affair, although that would be speculation on my part. Well, that's right. Well, Ben Bradley, the Washington Post executive editor, when the paper was covering up Spence's CIA connection and blackmail activities, also had longstanding ties to the CIA. And in the book Catherine the Great, journalist Deborah Davis showed that Ben Bradley was producing CIA propaganda as far back as the 1950s. And Bradley said Davis was lying about uh, this and pressured her publisher, Harcourt Brace, to withdraw the book, Catherine the Great. And it was pulped. 
Ken Davis sent several Freedom of Information Act requests to the government and State Department documents confirmed that Bradley turned out CIA propaganda at the behest of the Paris CIA chief. So ultimately, Bradley was the one lying about his CIA connection. So I think there's a long history of the CIA and the Washington Post working together. And I would encourage listeners interested in this to, to look it up themselves, because uh, I, I think that what you're saying is certainly borne out by the evidence, that's for sure. Do, do you reckon that your case was different than some other uh, cases, both in your being prosecuted and the press coverage, because you operated a gay escort service? Well, I, I do think that my sexual orientation uh, had a part. I think that I ran a gay escort service during the Reagan and Bush 1 administration. And many of the politicians and power brokers that I provided with escorts, they were closeted Republicans. And it would have been a death knell to their careers if it came out that they were soliciting the service of gay escorts. So I do think that played a role. And, and it also asked, um, do you think it's typical to make an effort to compromise someone like yourself who's in a position to blackmail people? Do you think by the very nature that it's important to, to keep people like yourselves under control, which is why maybe Spence pulled you into his orbit? Well, I do, and Craig Spence, uh, he was even blackmailing me. Yeah. Craig called me over to his house and then talked to me for 30, 45 minutes. And after this conversation, he got up, opened the closet, another door inside there, and he played back their conversation. So I think that your answer to that question is yes. I think that's very important. Well, my final question here is that you, you've been an entrepreneur throughout your life. Mr. Vincent, you've moved far from the world of escorts in recent years. Uh, you certainly have some talents that, that uh, can sustain you, yet you've chosen to put, uh, to put this book out now. And I'm, and I'm wondering, if you, are you optimistic that you can, you can accomplish some good by, by telling this tale? Well, I am. So I'd like to tell your listeners that they should read Confessions of a D.C. Madam because it pulls back the curtain on the facet of American politics unlike any other book. It shows that blackmail plays an integral role in the American political process, and it also shows the ruthless lengths the government will take to silence those in the know. Well, we appreciate very much your speaking with us, and would again tell our listeners the book is Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. We certainly wish you well in the future, and thank you for speaking with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's the same old story. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break. Boy, and now you're headed.